Well, good morning, family. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, we see a story starting in verse 13. It says, One day there were some parents who brought their children to Jesus so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering Jesus. But Jesus said, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And he placed his hands on their heads and blessed them before he left. Welcome to a crash course in chemistry. When Kurt asked me to, uh, to preach on parenting, I don't think he asked me because he thinks I'm any sort of expert or uh, authority on the topic. Um, I'm married. I do have three kids, so I am a parent. I also, I also own a baseball mitt, a baseball bat, and I do not play for the Rays. And uh, maybe it'd help, but, uh, but, but the, the story goes, the day I was born, that my father held me in his arms and he turned to my mother and he said, I'm just glad I'm not the ultimate authority in his life. And this morning I claim the same truth. Uh, I'm not an expert, but I know where the expert guidance and information is. I'm not an authority, but I know where the authority is. And it's simply in the Word of God. And as I've studied the, the parenting scriptures uh, that are within the Bible and pre- preparing for this message, and, and I'll be honest, there's not a lot of scriptures that are specifically about parenting in the Bible. And, and I think there's a good reason for that, which I'll share in a moment. But as I'm, as I'm looking through every verse that has to do specifically with parenting, eventually I stumble across a story. And I have one of those aha moments where, where I think I can sum up every, every parenting passage within the Bible in two statements, two uh, themes that are revealed in one story. It's the story that I just read, where one day there were parents who brought children to Jesus. That, that if you were to look at half the scriptures about parenting in the Bible, it would say this, Bring children to Jesus. It's the one thing we're shown to do, and then Jesus tells us something then not to do. And that is, don't stop them. I think you could take every verse in the Bible in in parenting. Your crash course in chemistry on parenting is simply this. Bring children to Jesus, and then don't get in the way. Don't stop them. I also think it's interesting that when the Bible teaches this to us, It shows us one thing to do, and then Jesus talks about what not to do. See, I think that's parenting as well. That that we're supposed to show our children what to do, and then we talk about what not to do. It it doesn't really work well the other way. If we we talk about, you know, what we're supposed to do, and uh, and then they watch us as we show them what not to do. That never really works out. You see, I think the principle, in biblical parenting, I think the principle is simple. Bring your children to Jesus and then don't stop them. Don't get in the way. Show them, uh, you know, what to do, talk about, what not to do. I think the principle is extremely simple, and that's why I think there's not a lot of verses about parenting specifically within the Bible. But the process, the process of parenting is highly complicated, (laughs) The principle might be simple, but the process is complex. The process is messy. The process is bumpy all the way through. Why? 
Because every child's different. Because they all have a sinful nature. And so do we. (laughs) And so while the principle might be simple, the process is complex. The process is extremely complex. And, And you may be sitting here this morning, and you're going, oh great, I showed up for parenting week at Crash Course for Chemistry. You know, I showed up, I don't even have kids. You know, I'm not even thinking about kids. Or, or maybe you've already raised your kids. And you're thinking, I've done this, been there, done that. This is not for me. And if that's you, I need you to hang with me for one second. Because I have something to speak to you that I need you to receive. Because if you walk out of this room and you do not receive it, we are all in a world of hurt. So if you would, just hang with me for a second. About 16 or so years ago, several million dollars was donated to a study that came out of Notre Dame. You can read about this study and research in a book called Soul Searching by Christian Smith. And what they've done is is the 16 years and still going, they've been studying and researching parents uh, who bring their kids to church. And they're watching kids that have been dropped off to Sunday school, that have been brought um, to children's worship. Eventually, they've grown up. They've gone to the middle school programming, to the high school youth group, uh, several of which have gone into college. And, uh, and now, several are out of college, and they are, uh, they're, they're beginning to live life as young adults. And what they've been observing is that many of them haven't quite made the transition from a second-hand faith to a first-hand faith. And, and what I mean by that is, is the idea that their faith started because it was their parents' faith. In other words, I go to church because my parents go to church. I sing about loving Jesus because my parents love Jesus. And, and the idea is that eventually down the road, that eventually there would be a transition from a second-hand faith to a first-hand faith, where all of a sudden, I follow Jesus because I love Jesus. I go to church and live out values and beliefs that are laid out in the Bible because I follow him as my Lord and Savior. It's a first-hand faith. And and, and while several didn't necessarily make the transition just because they went to church, there were many who did make the transition. And so in this study, what they're looking at is, well, what contributed to the success of those kids who made the transition from a second-hand faith into a first-hand faith, and now they're living it out in their young adulthood. Now they're following Jesus like we hope our children would and, and will. And what they found in the ones that have been successful in this is they had several things in common that seemed to contribute to the success of transitioning from a second-hand faith to a first-hand faith. The first thing. They found in this study that, that it contributed to the success to these children. And this was the most common uh, thing between the, the kids who had done this. Is that they had parents who were invested in their children's spiritual development. Parents. They, they were the number one influence. The, the primary voice that spoke into their children's lives. Guess what? I don't care what study you read and check out, whether it's Christian or secular, our parents are the number one influence in our lives for good or for bad. It it goes either way. In fact, some of us are in therapy because it was bad, you know, and and we're we're trying to not make the same mistakes that our parents made. But however, it's, it's really tough for some reason because they've been the number one influence in our lives, whether we wanted them to or not. They influenced us how to be parents. They influenced us how to live lives for good or for bad. And so we're dealing with that. 
In fact, you, you could show me, show me a lady who, who's got low self-esteem issues, who makes poor choices based off of low self-esteem, and most often we can trace it back and say, well, she has daddy issues. Show me a young man who's terrified to lead. Show me a young man who's, who's terrified of, of ever failing. And a lot of times we can trace that back to an overprotective mother who never gave him the chance to fail. For good or for bad, our parents are the number one influences in our life. Just how it is. Then there was the second thing. The second thing that they had most in common that contributed to their success. Uh, For this one, it was positive. They had parents who were invested in their spiritual development and did well, and it contributed to their success in, in making this transition. But the second thing was this. There was a Christian adult role model that was not their parent that spoke into their life. I'm calling this the second voice. There was another, another voice that spoke into the child's life at critical moments within their development. A, a Christian adult role model who it wasn't their child, but they still spoke into that child's life and it contributed to their success. The, these might have been people who didn't have children yet. They might have even been teenagers. They, these, were, these were people who had raised their kids and now decided to pour into their grandkids. These were church volunteers. These are people who each Sunday decided to teach the twos and threes, the fours and fives, the fifth graders, the middle schoolers. These were the ones who showed up during the week to be small group leaders and to teach the teenagers and to speak in their lives as a secondary voice. The third and the fourth thing that they found most in common to their success in in making the transition from a second-hand faith to a third-hand faith was that these these young adults all had, had been built into them. They all had a Bible reading habit and an active prayer life. But the reality is that the last two were byproducts of the first two. That if they had this, they were more than likely to develop this. You see, as you're sitting there this morning, I need you to understand that for good or for bad, whether you like it or not, if you have kids... You're the primary voice. If you don't, you're the secondary voice. Either way, the responsibility biblically is the same. To bring the children to Jesus and then get out of the way. To show them what it looks like to do uh, what Jesus says to follow him and to talk about what it doesn't look like. Because either way, the kids are watching. Either way, you're influencing And if we don't get this right, then we're in a heap of trouble. In fact, in the Old Testament, there was a generation that completely missed this. In fact, if you got your Bibles, if you would open them up to the book of Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and and hold there on verse 4 for a second. Let me give you some context about what what we're going to read. We're going to go back to, that's book 5, we're going to go back to book 1. Book one, where we read about Genesis, and in Genesis, this guy shows up, his name is Abraham, and God makes a promise to Abraham. One, he promises him land. He says, I'm going to give you this promised land, and I'm going to fill it and give it to your descendants. And uh, so we see that in, uh, 
in Genesis, we follow the story till we get to Exodus. And at this point, the descendants of Abraham, they're calling themselves the Israelites. And at this point, they're about two and a half million people. The problem is they are enslaved in Egypt by the Egyptians. And so in Exodus, God brings them a deliverer, a guy named Moses, and he takes them out of Egypt and they cross the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, they are a free people, a free nation about to be established under God. And so what God gives them starting in the end of Exodus is a law. He starts giving them laws, and then he goes into the book of Leviticus, and he gives them even more laws. And the promise with these laws is that if you will follow the words of God, if you will follow these laws, then you will live long and prosper in this land I'm about to give you. But then we get to the book of Numbers. We get to the book of Numbers. They're about to enter into this land. Now, this, these people, this generation, they have been given all the information. They have a strong Bible knowledge. They know the words of God. They've even seen the miracles of God. They've seen them part the Red Sea. They've seen them provide for, for their needs within the desert. But now it's an opportunity to not, just, to not just know it, to not just see it, but they have to be able to live it. And so what God says is, I'm going to give you this land. All you've got to do is step forward. You've seen what I can do. Now let me work through you. But this generation, they have the information. This generation, they've seen what God can do, but they're not willing to live it and let God do it through them. And so what God says is, well, then guess what? You don't get the promise. You're not going to get this land. This generation is going to wander around in the desert until they completely die off. And I will raise up the next generation and they will have the opportunity to learn from the old generation's mistakes. And that's the book of Numbers. It starts with a count. It starts with the numbers of the, the old generation. There's the census that ta- that's taken. And then 40 years go by through the book of Numbers and at the end they take another census and it's a new count. And you realize that the old generation has died. A new generation is now uh, up and ready and their parents of their own and they are ready to make, to, to make correct the mistake of the past generation. And so we get to Deuteronomy, where God has a new generation, and he, and he reissues them the law. He reissues them his words. And they're ready. I mean, they're chomping at the bit. They're like, we're going to follow you, God. We're not going to make this mistake. And God says, great, but here's the deal. As you make these correct steps, I need you to pass them on and teach them to the generation behind you so that they can pass them to the generation behind you so that we can keep this cycle and get it right and you can live long and prosper in this promised land. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, God's saying, all right, you ready to do this right? Well, let me teach you how to do this well. Let me teach you, number one, how to do good parenting, how to pass this on to the next generation. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord your God, I'm sorry, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands I give you today are to be on your hearts. In other words, number one step in parenting, biblically, love God so much that you can't help but live it. Love God so much with all your heart, with every emotion you have that it influences your mind, every thought you have that influences every action you deliver through your strength, that you love God so much, he's prioritized so much that you cannot help but live it out. If you can start there, then you're on the right track. I was in youth and family ministry uh, full-time for about 11 years. 
And several times I'd get the, the phone call from, from concerned parents that there was dysfunction within the family. And, and, uh, and as they were talking, a lot of times this phrase would come up. And uh, right away when it would come up, there'd be kind of a red flag. Like, I can tell you where the dysfunction is. You just said it. And, and, and it sounded like a great phrase and it went this way. Well, you know, it's all about the kids. You know, it's all about the kids. And, and I hear these parents talk that way. And, and, uh, and it sounded noble. It sounded selfless. But I'll be honest, it's not. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis. Let's go back to the very first verse in the Bible where God sets things in order, where God sets up institutions, where he gives us a picture of how he designed it. And it says that in the beginning was the kids. No, in the beginning, God. He sets it up, he starts it off, he creates it, he gets to be first. God creates all sorts of things, and, and, uh, including man, and he looks at all that he's created, and he says, this is good, this is good, this is good, and then he gets to one part and he says, this is not good. He says, it is not good that man should be alone. So he creates woman, and all of a sudden he issues the institution of marriage. Marriage. God establishes marriage, secondary. Then, he says, now that we got marriage, you should have fun with that. Make some babies and uh, be fruitful, multiply, and you got kids. But here's the order. Starts with God, goes to your spouse, then your kids. But it's so easy to take this one and begin to start moving it up higher and higher and higher. But that's where the problem lies. See, I can tell you, I've seen your kids when they're teenagers, and they're not going, oh, I'm so glad my parents were all about me. I'm so glad they spoiled me. You know what they say? I wish mom and dad loved each other enough to stay together. I I wish my family wasn't split up the way it is. I'd trade all the spoilage, all the attention I could get if if they cared about this more than they cared about me. Uh, there's several times in, in my own marriage, and I've got to remind myself of this, because that one's work. <laughs> there's several times where, where um, you know, my kids will begin to talk, and my wife's already talking, and I have to remind them and remind myself. I say, hey, you know, kids, I, I hear what you're saying, but your mom was talking, and she's more important. I tell my kids that all the time. They've yet to resent me for that, but I tell my boys uh, that their mom's more important to them because someday they're going to get married, and they need to believe that too. The security our kids have uh, in our family is built upon the love that, our, that we have for our spouses. The security my kids have is not in my love for them. It's in the love I have for their mother. And guess what? The security I have in my marriage is not because of the love that's between my wife and myself. It's in the security that my wife Erica loves Jesus more than she loves me. Thank goodness. Because I'm a jerk. I am. I, I'm, I'm flawed. I, I, I'm selfish. My, a lot of times my love has conditions. I mean, I'm a jerk. And uh, my love is tainted. But, but luckily my wife loves Jesus more than she loves me. And, and so Jesus often tells her to cut me some slack. <laughs> Jesus often tells her, give him grace, a gift he does not deserve. <laughs> love him because of your commitment to me. He tells me the same thing about her. The security we have in our marriage is not our love for each other, but our love for God. In other words, God says, you want to get this right? It starts here. And if you can get that right, then you can get that right, and you can get that right. But it never works out when you start there. 
In fact, you'll end up loving them more if you can get these two right first. Love it so much that you can't help but live it. Second thing God tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, says, impress them. It's the words of God, his commands. Impress the word of God on your children. Talk about the word of God when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. In other words, you're always doing one of those things. You're either sitting down, you're lying down, you're standing up, you're walking around. And in other words, the idea is where whatever you're doing, as you are doing it, Teach and talk to your kids about what it looks like to live for God. In other words, teach and talk about it as you live it. In other words, it's not just a Sunday thing where we drop them off at church. No, it's when you're writing the tithe check, talk to your children and teach them why you do this. When you're loading up the car for church, teach and talk to your kids why you do this. When you're heading to small group, teach and talk to them why you do this. When you crack open your Bible to read it, teach and tell your kids why you're doing this. That it's an ongoing thing. In fact, the verb in the Hebrew, the verbs that exist there, they're the same verbs used when describing the sharpening of a tool. The idea that to properly sharpen a tool, it takes repetition and precision. That this is an ongoing process to do. This is an ongoing thing that's, uh, that's built into our lives. In fact, it's the idea where we get to discipling. In other words, a disciple just simply means Student. And if, if the child is a student, then that means whether you're the second voice or the primary voice, role must be embraced as teacher. And the idea of discipling is where we get the word training. It's where we get the word discipline. And that discipline is the teacher taking the role, being the teacher, and, and teaching then the student. I, I like what the Bible has to say about discipline. Proverbs chapter nineteen eighteen says, Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. The the idea is this, if we will embrace our primary role or our secondary role and teach the kids, if we will disciple them, if we will discipline, well, it's actually a matter of life and death for the child and whether we decide to embrace our role or not. Another interesting thing the Bible says about uh, discipline training, it's in Proverbs 22.6. It says, direct your children onto the right path, and when they are older, they will not leave it, which kind of implies when they're younger, they will. I mean, we did. But the point is to to lay it down with repetition and precision so it becomes a foundation. A foundation that that when rebellion wears off, it's what they have to come back to. It's the security they have. And you may say, well, Tom, you don't know my family. You don't know my dad. He took discipline to a whole other level. It wasn't about bringing you to Jesus. It was, you know, it it was bringing you to justice. It it was, you know, my dad... It was done out of anger. My mom, it was done out of, she was just frustrated all the time. It was done out of control. Well, the Bible has some words about that as well. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 says, Fathers, mothers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, it differentiates. Instead, bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, mothers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. It's a messy process. And there's a line. You want to bring your children to Jesus, but you've got to make sure you don't get in the way of him. It goes on in Deuteronomy to teach this generation. In verse 8, it says, Tie them, tie the words of God, as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, the Hebrews, they took this literally. 
In fact, they built these little wooden boxes. They called them phylacteries. And they put ribbon to them, and they would tie these wooden boxes upon their heads and onto their wrists. And within these boxes, they would place scripture. They would place actual, uh, you know, scripture verses written on paper into the boxes. And and the idea was that the word of God uh, was very obvious on your forehead, was very obvious on your wrist. So whenever whenever anybody would see you, they they would know what you're living because you're just wearing. You're wearing the I Love Jesus t-shirt. You know, you're wearing the phylactery. And, uh, and so the idea is that you would let it be known that you live it. In, in other words, your children would live it and let it be known that you live it because they could see you doing that. That you would let it be known that you live it. And, and this, this was kind of, a, kind of a common idea. In fact, back in Egypt, they would take uh, jewels and, and good luck charms and they would place them on their foreheads and them on their wrists. And, and the idea was that my life is led by luck. My focus is on luck, and so hopefully I'll have good luck as I go through life. You know what else the Egyptians did? They, they were known to brand and tattoo their slaves. And they would tattoo and brand them on their faces and on their arms. And the idea is that when a slave was just feeling good about themselves but saw their reflection, they would realize, oh yeah, I'm a slave. I'm held captive by Egypt. When they go out to do something good, they would see the tattoo and marking on their arm. They'd go, oh yeah. Doesn't matter what I do. I'm just a slave. And here God is talking to a slave generation, perhaps a branded, tattooed children generation. And what God says, I want you to cover up those markings, those scarred markings of your past, so that when you walk around, people see the hope of your future. I want when people look at you, they see the word of God drives your life. The word of God drives your actions. And they said, I want you to write it on the doorposts of your house. It's the literal idea that this is holding up the roof. So while you live under my roof, which is held up by the word of God, we will abide by the word of God. That the home, the parents would prioritize the spiritual development of their children. And I think for some reason we struggle with this. And really only in this area of life. What I mean is, uh, my son, he signed up for t-ball back in the fall, and, and uh, we signed up for a t-ball season, and, and there were nights where, where uh, my, my son Parker would say, you know, Dad, I don't want to play today. And his mom and I would say, tough. You know, you, you made a commitment to, to the team, to coach, you know, you, you made a commitment to the season, we're going to prioritize your physical development, and you're going to go play. And there, during the school year, several mornings where my kids would wake up and and say, you know what, Dad, Mom, I don't want to go to school today. And we would say, tough. (laughs) You know, if if you're not sick, even then, if you're not throwing up, even then, if it's smooth or chunky, it's debatable, (laughs) you know. You know, you're going to school. You know, we're going to provide, we're going to prioritize your intellectual development. And and then there are those times where I've watched and, and it's, you know, kids will go, Mom, Dad, I don't want to go to church tonight. I don't want to go to youth group tonight. I don't want to go to church this morning. And all of a sudden, we're in a panic. Oh, no. (laughs) They must not be feeding you enough pizza over there. The colors might not be bright enough, or they're not making it fun enough. And all of a sudden, we abdicate the role of leadership, and we pass it over to the church, to the second voice, and say, well, they're responsible for this. That's not what God says. Says it's our job, parents, and it, if anything, it might be our primary job to prioritize the spiritual development of our children while they live under the word of God in our roof. And then it says not just to pay, place these words of God on your, on your doorpost, but also on the gates. 
And this was not the personal property. This was not you're going out to your white picket fence. These were the gates of the city, of the town. These were the big gates where all the people would gather, where the scribes and the teachers would be. And on these gates, they'd have bigger boxes filled with even more words of God, more scripture. And so the idea is that you would bring your your children to Jesus under your roof, but then you would let them out of the house and you would let them go to the teachers and, and go to where they could find more scripture and go to where they could ask their questions and have more learning. And you wouldn't get in the way of that. Parents, don't ground your kids from church. I hated that one in youth ministry. I was like, where's Tim? I haven't seen him in like three weeks. Like, oh yeah, we grounded him from church, from youth group. Well, why'd you do that? He really liked it. And, And we wanted to get his attention. I could tell you a lot of other things little, you know, Tim likes, you know, you could take away. And I'll just tell you, you know, it, it's an idiot move to ground your kids from church. You're shooting yourself in the foot. And they'd be like, oh, we want him to raise his grades. So do we. <laughs> in fact, my prayer for my kids, I know that they're going to, it's not too long and they're going to grow up and they're going to be teenagers. And, and I know there's going to come the day where they're going to go, you know, my dad's stupid. My dad, he doesn't know what he's saying. My, my mom's, you know, she, she's got dumb rules and she's so frustrating. They don't get me. They don't do that, you know. And, uh, and my prayer is that when they have those moments that they are complaining to their small group leader on Wednesday night. Because you know what he's going to do when he talks to my boys? He's going to tell them and steer them right in the direction that I was going to or I was trying to. It's just going to sound cooler coming from him. I need that second voice. And healthy churches partner with parents. Healthy churches don't embrace the primary voice. That's not ours to have, but they embrace the secondary voice. In fact, we have some opportunities coming up this summer where you can let your kids out of the house to go to the gates to hear from the second voice and get a break from you. In fact, there, there's some dates I, I'd like you to consider. Um, one is uh, we have a Lake Aurora retreat. It's August 14th through 16th. This is for middle school and high school students. They're getting two hours away to hear the word of God and to come back and to talk about it with you. And so mark those dates down. Sign your kids up if you haven't. We've got a VBS coming the first week of August, and you're going to want your elementary kid to be a part of that. And then we have something coming up August 3rd. Write that on your calendar. This is, we're calling it your child's next step. In other words, you may be like, Tom, I don't even know where to begin talking to my kids about Jesus. And uh, we're just going to spend a Sunday at 9.30 and 11 o'clock. We're doing the same thing twice, so pick either hour. Room 218, myself and our children's minister, Lisa Gilstrap, we're going to be up there, and we're just going to talk to you about how do you talk to your kids. What do you do when they're asking questions, and what do you do if they're not? And how do you talk to your kids about Jesus? And so mark that on your calendar, because healthy churches partner with parents. It was about a month ago that um, I had the privilege of baptizing my oldest son, Parker. And that was a learning experience for me. There were several times where I almost got in the way of that experience. And, and um, I, I just wanted it to be a firsthand faith transition. And I, I wanted to make sure of that as best as I could. And, but Parker kept bringing it up. He kept you know, saying, Dad, I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about heaven. I want to talk about baptism. And so finally, I just kind of gave in. So fine, let's, let's, we'll sit down tonight, your mom and I and you, and we'll, let's have this conversation. And uh, so we sat down. He was asking questions, and we were giving answers. And, and at one point in the night, I, I took a piece of paper, and I took a marker. And um, I began to, to draw a picture that when I was nine years old, my dad drew for me. And uh, I told Parker, I said, you know what, Um, it wasn't always like this. In fact, God created us 
so that we could be together with him. The, the problem is that we got sin, and sin created a gap, created a chasm. Our sin, and it separated us from God. I said, but God wasn't done yet. And that was the point of the story where my son interrupted me. And he took the piece of paper away from me and said, I got it, Dad. And he began to draw this. I never taught my son where to draw the cross. But one of you did. There was a second voice that spoke into his life at a critical moment within his spiritual development. I got to carry on the conversation. I had the privilege of picking up my role as the primary voice. But one of you took him there. And as I'm talking to my son, and I want it to be his decision, several times that night, I'm, I'm just looking at him. He's talking to me. He's, he's speaking to me. But it was just strange because it wasn't his voice talking back to me. I, I don't know any other way to describe it than... Then, I mean, we're talking and, and there's words coming out of his mouth. It sounds like Parker, but there's something different about it. And as we're talking to it, I, and talking and back and forth, I realize I recognize this voice. I recognize this voice that's speaking back to me. I'm just used to, to hearing it from a different place. I'm used to hearing it up here or in here. And it hit me. I am having a one-on-one conversation with the Holy Spirit of God right now. It's just coming from the lips of my son. I don't want to get in the way of him. When Mark tells the story about the children coming to Jesus, and eventually the adults got out of the way. And when Mark tells it, he adds one part. He says, the children went to Jesus and Jesus took them up into his arms. When we get out of the way, that's where they land. Now, I realized that when my son was baptized that he didn't all of a sudden become the fourth member of the Trinity. You know, he, it's 45 minutes later from his baptism, he's wrestling on the ground with his cousins in the lobby. Um, he didn't become a saint. He started his journey. And he committed to pay attention when we talk about Jesus and what it means to follow him. And all of a sudden, my role as a parent heightened. He's really looking to me now to, God, to Dad, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And guess what? He's looking to you too. The, uh, we, we got Parker a Bible to celebrate that. And, the, and so uh, it, was, it was a couple nights later. It was late. It was a long day. We, a lot had happened. And he had school the next day. And I'm tucking him into bed. And uh, he says, Dad, I want to read my Bible. And I'll be honest. My, my first inclination was, you're going to be wiped out at school tomorrow. You need to get your sleep, go to bed. We've had a long day. And, and then I heard that little voice that said, don't stop him. And I thought about, yeah, today may be rough, but eternity is going to be awesome. So I went and got a flashlight and fresh batteries, and here you go. Uh, The next morning, he woke up, and he said, Dad, I want to take my Bible to school with me. I'll be honest, I panicked. (laughs) He goes to public school, and I thought, oh, no, he's going to get made fun of today. And I thought, or or even worse, he's going to get, like, in trouble. He's going to get called in the principal's office. We're going to have to go have a parent-teacher conference over this, and... And I kind of heard that voice again. I said, Tom, don't stop him. 
All right, Parker, let's take your Bible and put it in your backpack. And then after school was over that day, we were there to pick him up at the bus stop. Us and the rest of the parents waiting for their kids. And, and as he got off the bus stop, I realized that he was continuing a conversation that he was having on the bus. And, and that was, he was telling his friends, he said, oh yeah, I got baptized this Sunday. I follow Jesus now. And, and then he started, he walked up to the other parents and they're praying with the kids like, yeah, hey, I got baptized. I follow Jesus now. <laughs> you know? And I realized that the Holy Spirit is working through him more than it's yet to work through me with my neighbors. When we bring our kids to Jesus and we let them go and work with the hands of Jesus and they let those hands of Jesus work through them it won't be long till they find themselves in the arms of Jesus and so this morning I challenge you to bring kids to Jesus and to get out of the way don't stop them they'll run to him and maybe you're a parent and you're going you know what I don't even know where to begin I'll tell you I want our prayer partners to come forward now. It starts with the cross. It starts with surrender. It starts by saying, I'm going to lead my kids to Jesus because I'm going to follow him first. And if you need to make a decision to surrender your life to Jesus, to make him Lord and Savior of your life, I'm going to pray and close some prayer, but I invite you to not let it end there, but to come forward to pray with one of our prayer partners and make a life-changing decision for Jesus and to be the example. For the rest of us, maybe it's time to just embrace the role you already have, to be the second voice. Maybe it's time to talk to, to Griffin or, or the youth ministry and sign up to, to be an adult leader and to pour into kids what God's been pouring into you. Or maybe it's time to talk to Lisa and sign up to be a part of the children's ministry. And you know what? They'll be in the lobby. They'd love to talk to you. Maybe it's time to intentionally pour into these kids to bring them to Jesus and get out of the way. Whatever your decision is, don't walk out of here not making it. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you would use us, that you would use an incomplete, an impure, a corrupted generation, but that you would fill it with your Holy Spirit so that we can bring children to you. And Lord, I pray you get us out of the way. We love you. We thank you for your example in the words of Jesus. It's in in his name we pray. Amen.